Hello, and welcome to the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group. Um, this week we are continuing Chapter 17, uh, and we are going to be looking at the section titled Project Cybersyn, uh, which begins on page 270. Uh, so, um, Beer gives a nice little intro here. We saw in the last chapter how this project came to exist and what its intentions were. By now we have seen how the four main tools were created. Cybernet, yielding a national network of industrial communications to a center in Santiago, through which anyone could consult anyone else or gain access to decision takers in other locations. Cyberstride, the suite of computer programs needed to provide statistical filtration for all homeostatic loops at all levels of recursion. Someone has a hot mic. Oh, that's me. Okay. Uh, Cyberstride, the suite of computer programs needed to provide statistical filtration for all homeostatic loops at all levels of recursion. Checo, the model of the Chilean economy with simulation capacity. And the ops room a new environment for decision and dependent for its existence on the existence of the other three. But tools are useless in the hands of people who do not know how to use them. And a program for the dissemination of information had to begin as from the March start. Next, tools are useless until they are activated. How were data to be presented to the system? All of this involved a massive and continuing exercise in what I should call, in the original World War II sense, operational research. That is exactly what it was, research by highly qualified interdisciplinary teams into operations, namely production companies, <clears throat> with the prospect of discovering models and sets of measures. By July 1972, there were many of these teams organized by Ramas. Raul Espeo himself was controlling the work in the light Rama, covering the automotive industry and manufacturing firms in rubber, plastic, electrics, electronics, copper, and the light mechanical industries, refrigerators, washing machines, and so on. Jorge, Barrien Barriento, uh, excuse me, Jorge Barrientos was dealing with the consumer Rama, agro-industrial, textiles, fishing, pharmaceuticals, and food, in the construction Rama involving forestry with its products of wood, furniture, pulp, chemicals, chipboards, and building materials, cement, prefabricated concrete, plaster, house construction units. The work was directed by Humberto Gabella. In the heavy Rama, we confronted a different situation. All the energy industries, <clears throat> iron and steel, and petrochemicals, had been state-owned for a long time. We were not dealing with workers' committees and interventors, as in the 300 newly nationalized companies, but with established and very senior Chilean managements. What is more, there were in-house OR groups serving these managers. As to the copper industry, newly nationalized amid an international furor, new moves of whatever kind might aggravate existing difficulties. It can readily be understood that the heavy Rama presented these innovatory initiatives with a highly charged situation, politically fraught. 
Thus, rather than appoint a senior Corfo man to this Rama, we sought the cooperation of each management separately, and on the whole, we got it, with the OR people concerned either in touch with or reporting to me directly. Uh, two cases of each nuance. Uh, so the teams selected and trained for these urgent and important assignments in the three Ramas were picked for their professional merit and without regard to their political stance. Not surprisingly, a typical Chilean professional would be inclined to treat a worker with some condescension, unless he had strong political convictions towards the left. There were several incidents, and at other times attitudes were taken. Where this, uh, excuse me, and at other times attitudes were taken where this tendency disquieted me, especially the teams, especially the teams were briefed to explain the quantified flowchart model in a plant and then to enlist help in creating it from those who work there and then to obtain agreement on the performance measures to be used. It was clear that this was not always being done in the intended spirit and it seemed likely that this fact aided detractors who later wished to call Cybersyn technocratic. It is again a reflection on the complicated nature of the 5-4 relationship that the political director, Flores, and the scientific director, Beer, held opposing views about this matter, each taking the position that the unthoughtful might well attribute to the other. At first sight, that is to say, the politician would be expected to demand political loyalty in professional staff engaged in work of such potency, while the scientists would be concerned to see that the best staff were chosen on professional merit. What happened was the politician could not afford accusations of partiality, while the scientists looked for the hard work engendered by total commitment. All right, what have people got to say about this section? Shane, go ahead. It's interesting that the existing nationalized sections of the economy pose the worst sort of problems in this regard. That like the the already established um, bureaucracy for those those nationalized industries was an obstacle to this um, this um, this this new venture they were going on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know. Um, if we look, for example, at the history of nationalization in uh, the UK, you know, we can see that there was really nothing pro-worker about it at all. Um, mm -hmm. And I assume that that also held for the Chilean case, that it was simply a matter of, uh, you know, established macroeconomic theory supporting the idea of nationalizing the commanding heights of industry, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for, for reasons of capital accumulation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I mean, if you have that purpose in mind, when you do the nationalization, then uh, it's the management that exists will entrench that mindset. Right. Absolutely. Right. And like, I mean, maybe it's more with the UK case, but um the way that the sort of mid-century union stuff got integrated into the state in that kind of way. So like the unions weren't really a function of worker power. They were a function of like national interest, um, which is perhaps also the case here with, with what we're seeing in this heavy drama. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly, but I do, I do know that, you know, Chile, 
Chile's revolution was kind of unusual in the 20th century in the sense that Chile actually had like a developed capitalist economy, uh, you know, with a strong workers movement. Uh, it's kind of somewhat more similar to the Cuban case than most of the other cases we see of uh, sort of like Marxist revolution, where it's just a peasant led thing for the most part. Um, okay. Uh, any other comments on this? Shane, go ahead. I guess like this, this last bit all is also kind of interesting that like um, the, the sort of role reversal from what you'd expect where um, the sort of Flores, like is ostensibly the sort of like political thrust of this. He, he can't afford to be too partisan about it, but beer is like fucking waving the flag, you know, for, uh, for like true dedication to the cause. Um, and so on. It's just, uh, and, and also this more general sort of point the beer is making that like, eh, sometimes this stuff turns out the way you'd not expect it to. And these tensions, and these fault lines don't necessarily line up with what you'd expect. Yeah. And, you know, I guess it's a matter of beer as the engineer arguing for implementation of the plan, right? Like, because autonomy is engineered into the plan, it makes sense that the engineer would argue for that. Uh, even if, yeah, he, he was actually brought onto the project by Flores and not the other way around. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Damn. Uh, um, I was just in the, of, 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 of like the timing, you know, like Aberfan was uh, 1966. So, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, like the state capitalism that, you know, like is just as much of a, you know, um, a, a Cthuloid Titan that, you know, like doesn't even know who it's crushing. <laughs> you know, like he had that in mind as, as much as anything else. Yes. Yeah, fair. Um, absolutely. Uh, the other thing I wanted to sort of bring up here is I was just I was just in a conversation with uh, my colleagues at Utrecht uh, the other day, and we were talking about um, anticipatory governance capacities. Uh, and it definitely strikes me that when we were talking about like sort of ability to entertain variety in futures and uh, to actually develop those futures, like these prior nationalized corporations, uh, the, the, the state-owned corporations that, that pre-existed are, were definitely lacking in those capacities. Like they, you know, they just, they had the established way of doing things and uh, they really, you know, were impoverished when it came to democratic capacities. Uh, so this is a major problem. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's something we should all pay attention to when we, you know, if and when we advocate for uh, nationalization, we should bear in mind that a bad nationalization can actually end up worse than a private, um, a privately owned corporation because you end up creating strategic uh, barriers for democracy in the workplace uh, going forward. 
Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, just to, to kind of riff on that, like there's that is certainly or has been maybe not so much now, but has been a sort of problem with the left in Britain that um, a lot of people's like actual experience dealing with unions and dealing with like nationalized um, sectors of the economy was really not that good. Like they, they had an, a fairly well-earned reputation for being bureaucratic and kind of tyrannical and like actually kind of bad at like doing doing the things they were doing as well. Um, which, I mean, like the, the, the turn to Thatcherism was obviously pushed by the, the bourgeoisie, but it was like kind of riding on a wave of sentiment um, or like found, its, found some of its justification in, in sort of popular sentiments that weren't exactly... Um, you know, super fond of the, of the sort of nationalized industries. Uh, that's turning now again, like, cause I mean, we're, we're sick mm. of that stuff, but this is very, it's very difficult. Like, I mean, if, if you're, if you have an experience of like your nationalized energy service being fucking terrible, um, it's very hard to then go around banging on people's doors, talking to them about nationalization, you know, cause they're like nuts. It's awful. Yeah. It's similarly, like for, for many people, the word, the word communism just immediately calls to mind this like red swastika sort of problem um and so it's just there's, there's a real problem here of like being able to work with um work with the, the the meanings that the terminology has for people in in a in particular contexts and there are other contexts in which you know say i don't know for the americans it's like nationalization of pretty much anything sounds great because they don't have any nationalized stuff anyway um well but, yeah. and at, at, at the same time like I think it's also important to say that, like, uh, this doesn't mean, you know, we should ever support privatization of nationalized industries, mm -hmm. except if they're going into the hands of workers. Yeah. Because, you know, as bad as those services were under national ownership, Mm -hmm. All of the privatizations in Britain have been demonstrably worse. Oh, they and, have, they have and been there's widespread yeah. support for, like, you know, even though Corbyn himself was not personally popular, his mm -hmm. ideas about nationalizing the rail and stuff and, and, you know, fixing up the Royal Mail and all that kind of thing uh, were very popular because the, the Thatcher privatizations were such mm -hmm. a shit show. Um, totally. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking more like the sort of like going around and talking to people problem of like people have preconceived notions of what what words mean. And yeah. we, we mean different things by the same words. And that's that's something that's worth always kind of threading very carefully. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about nationalizing oil and gas. Right. Like this is a widespread question because demand is 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 starting to drop. Um. And this is also like a thing that should be in the conversation, right? Is that like, no, this isn't an automatic good. You know, the state isn't communist <laughs> in the first place. So we need to keep that in mind. What's, uh, what's that Brumaire bit where Marx is like, oh, all the dumb shit that the right wing make up about socialism, that they start saying, oh, filling in potholes is socialism, but then socialists come to believe that, you know, the, right. The, 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 the right are like, oh, you know, any amount of the state, that's just communism. And then like leftists <laughs> believe that somehow. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, all we need is a mega state and we'll have, we'll have mega socialism by default. Right? Yeah. 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 It's definitely a thing. Uh, okay. Matt, please go ahead. 
Um, uh, I, 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 yeah, yeah, uh, uh, what's um, uh, yeah, and uh, something that's encouraging is that like th- there are some like uh, publicly owned um uh, power um uh, uh, proposals that are going on. L- like uh, people are talking about like uh, um you know uh, taking collective ownership of uh, PG&E, but but they're not actually trying to do it like you know uh, national coal board style. L- like like they actually are um talking about governance models like um uh, um uh, you know multi stakeholder cooperatives and like actually having you know like like democratic feedback mechanisms and stuff and like yeah that's that's fucking cool yeah certainly uh not on the table in alberta regarding the oil and gas industry uh uh, (laughs) you know i think we're we're way behind when it comes to democracy in this province um so even though we do have a massive co-op here uh it's um it is not in the conversation, which which actually does also own um, does own oil and gas uh, does own like its own uh, oil refineries and stuff. Uh, but I, I think uh, it's um, generally held to be quite right wing, uh, which which makes sense. I'm not surprised. Uh, OK, um, so let's carry on. Uh, assuming that it is clear how to set about modeling a plant as a quantified quantified flow chart, as in Figure Forty Three. Let's return to Forty Three and just check that we actually know what the heck's going 40, on. Forty Three is on the facing page. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Okay, Forty Three is on the facing page. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty simple. You know, it's it's like a it's a inputs and outputs thing that um, would be familiar to any kind of uh, industrial systems diagram. It's, it's there's there's nothing particularly Berean about this 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 chart. It's just okay. This is a this is what you would do in any plant. It's standard practice. Um. Uh. Yeah. Uh, let us turn to the problem of modeling the higher levels of recursion in which are embedded the lower, like a series of Chinese boxes or Russian dolls and viable systems all. Suppose that the firm's operations are a series of plants and that the firm is one of several operations constituting system one of a corporation. All three configurations can be mapped onto the viable system of figure 27, which is like the standard VSM diagram. But I think it's worth looking at 27 uh, because Beer is referring to the wavy lines here, which is is something that's probably peculiar to, to that diagram. 27 is page... Page 157. Uh, Okay, so wavy lines he's talking about. The wavy lines are the vertical lines between the divisions on the left-ish side. Oh, yeah. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So these are the immediate cross-connections between the divisions that are not really part of the control loop. They're the the actual connections. want to actually look at the 
Wikipedia improved VSM <laughs> diagram because yeah, sure. I we remember the the system one interface was all screwy in the one that's in this book. Uh, so when we look at the Wikipedia one, uh, they're squiggly lines, not wavy lines. Uh, they are they're squiggly lines labeled as operational linkages uh, in the Wikipedia diagram. Uh, it's uh, lowercase Roman numeral three is, is what the wavy lines would be. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, yeah, they're kind of like sawtooth, sawtooth lines. Yeah, sawtooth um, lines. Uh, Yes. operational linkages yeah so i think i think that's the thing like they're they're the the real connections like physical flow of materials and goods and so on mm. um back and forth so they're they're not those connections are not like connections in system two like they're not part of the yes. control circuit part of the thing being controlled yes 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 so in a in a like um in a thermostatic sort of setup, like a thermostatic homeostat thing, these wavy lines would be the like actual heat exchange between materials, and then the the, the thermostat circuit would be all the rest of the stuff. These mm -hmm. these are the actual things. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Okay. Um, so now the wavy lines connecting the operations of the plant have to do with whether one process feeds another and by what ratios the outputs of these individual machines are broken down between other processes. By the same token, the flowchart for the firm specifies whether, and if so how, those wavy lines connect plants together and by what ratios and so on. So this is the uh, figure 43 uh, diagram he's referring to there. By the time the corporation is reached, there may be no connections on the wavy lines between operations beyond the effects on each other of the competition for finite capital. The point is that the flow pattern of all this is different for each level of recursion, although the structural model is the same. By a similar argument, the flow pattern on the horizontal homeostats linking operations with environments will be different for each level of recursion because the environmental domains are quite different. So, yeah, that's pretty, pretty straightforward uh, to understand. It's like, well, yeah, you know, these these connections to system four and then the system ones are, are going to vary from operational level to operational level uh, to just sorry to level of recursion. Um, uh, the, this paragraph then explains that by using a universal model of viability as a source book or guide to any viable system, uh, then empirical research may be designed at each level of recursion, the result being a set of flowcharts, each unique in pattern. It follows that the quantification at each level must also be unique because it has to apply to this flowchart and no other. Thus, the proposition is demonstrated. Information must be tailor-made to suit the appropriate level of recursion. Reductio ad absurdum, do not send, or do not send the day's output figures for a limestone crusher in Erica to the Minister for Economics. 
right? That's just not relevant information. Um, you know, whatever McNamara might have thought in managing the Vietnam War, it's simply not relevant information for someone at that level of recursion to know. Uh, however, there is a difficulty about this in practice. Where what where can one find the figures for the flowcharts of the higher levels of recursion? Uh, so it, the proposition is demonstrated that there is no uh, empirical production information about any level of recursion higher than the plant. Reductio ad absurdum. When you were a plant foreman, you could observe Charlie being lazy. Now you are president of the corporation looking out of your skyscraper window and you see only clouds. There is a genuine paradox here which caused us trouble all through. To grasp its menace, it is necessary to see clearly that there is only one collection of valid data throughout the whole series of recursions. And that is at the ground level of action. As to production, there is no production except in plants. As to sales, there may be expensive work done at the corporate level, but that is the ground level of action for corporate affairs. These facts are entirely paralleled in the neurocybernetics of the viable system. We are almost wholly dependent on sensory data even at the limits of imagination and illumination. If there are invisible rays projected through outer space at the pineal gland, that would explain a lot, but such an input would still be sensory datum. So, you know, making a little Cartesian joke here. Um, uh, and the reason for saying that we are so dependent is that we learn how to perceive. See especially reference for. Um, so what Beer is saying here is really quite similar to the question about uh, productive and unproductive labor in classical political economy, right? Like the bottom level is where you can measure um, you can measure production, but that bottom level is going to uh, actually differ for each level of recursion. So if you're operating at a higher level where like sales is the main work of production, uh, then that's your bottom level. Even though you're getting fed information from a lower level of recursion's bottom level, it's not the same information, right? Because you're you're actually getting the attenuated version of that. Um, so yeah, so just bearing in mind that like each level of recursion has its own sort of like bottom level relative to that level. Uh, it's, 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 uh, and you know, the higher up you go, the less of it, the less obvious it's going to sort of be right. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, these like towering, uh, ladders of abstraction, right? Um, I think there's, there's also an interesting Thing, uh, tiny bit further back, um, that down at the down at the ground level, like the lowest levels, they're like these are deeply interconnected material flows of like um, 
um, matter and energy exchange, right? Like um, there's, a, there's a real materiality to it and there's the hyper complexity and an immediacy. Um, but then, and so all at the very lowest level, all of these squiggly lines are very thick and there's lots of them between all the, the operational units. But as you go further and further up, towards like the ramas, there might not there might not in fact be much of anything connecting the heavy to the light ramas, aside from like maybe exchange of finance or something, or like um, they, they become more abstract, they're less kind of um, less kind of real flows. Or I think what Beer actually says is that the connection could simply be that they have some kind of impact on each other, which would be like a budget impact that like you'd have departments of the or sort of the, yeah, areas that would not really be connected at all, except for the fact that they're they're glued together into a system in which they have to share a budget. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting to keep in mind as well. You have this like deep immersion and interconnectedness at the bottom levels, and probably more abstraction and, and less less connectedness higher up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, in management, the form of the paradox is the same. We learn how to perceive lower levels of recursion so that the flow chart of our own level may be quantified using the only variety reduction techniques that management accounting understands, essentially totals and averages. If the problem were simply that massive averaging may suppress whatever is really interesting, which is often the case, no matter, given Cyberstride. This is... Uh, this at least has the advantage over standard costing techniques that it assesses the importance of incipient change via both the probability and the site on the flowchart model to which it is applied, rather than to report a probably percentage variance that has already occurred. But that is only part of the problem. We should be concerned that the paradox reported on may distort all quantified flowcharts but one's own. In Chile, we referred to shop floor indices at the level of the enterprise as atomic, and then noted S molecules at the sector recursion and R molecules at the R-Rama recursion. So we have uh, lowest is atomic, obviously, and then S, and then R. Problems of agglomeration were solved in a rather rough and ready fashion, and much more remained to be done. But the problem is surely clear. How does one quantify two different molecules made up of the same set of atoms? Juan Bulnes produced the basis of a neat theoretical solution in which the dendritic structure of the Fortran compiler itself was used as the mapping for the molecular structure. But our, our molecules may not be dendritic. Perhaps a topological device is missing in order to facilitate this mapping, a device analogous to the benzene ring or the DNA double helix. Okay, so this is this is interesting. I think he's saying because the okay, so the paradox you talking about earlier is that there is only one data set really, but the application of the data, the relevance of the data to each level of recursion is actually going to be different. 
So you're you're kind of working at a fundamental atomic level with all the same stuff, but there's a kind of like weird holographic relationship between the atoms and the molecules, which may share the same atoms, but actually be different molecules. Um, so it's kind of like, it sounds like you use some kind of, uh, 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 you know, um, a tree to, uh, deal with this, but he's saying, well, maybe this doesn't actually have a dendritic tree structure. It might actually have a different kind of structure than this entirely. Uh, okay. So, so what do we think of this Shane? Uh, go ahead. And then, uh, and then we'll uh, go to Jake. Yes. Yeah, I, th I think this reminds me of some stuff I've seen fairly recently about like kind of more recent like neuroperceptual sort of stuff. And like the, the 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 general theory is that like this is the way perception really does work. It's like kind of there really is only one sort of plane of of eminence that like generates the um, the sensory data, but it's aggregated in these kind of like stacked aggregations that are are, are quite tree like ultimately. But there there are quite a few layers. Through which this stuff is is um, is is, um, is filtered, um, so it's, it seems that what what we are getting at here is not a million miles away from where the state of the art seems to be when when talking about these kind of perceptual systems. Right, right. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I think you know him talking about this sort of like the only real thing is the production at the like at the firm level, like. You know, because it's sort of getting to that, like without production, you know, without the material, there is nothing really. There's just these ideas. There's these structures based on top of it. But it's all it all comes back down to this thing. And and the problem is like, right, how do you represent these levels of recursion that incorporate these things, but don't like shy, like don't uh, represent something that isn't actually relevant to them and you know, and then and then when he's, I think when he's talking about this like this problem of like yeah, the, this sort of like mapping thing, this topological device. I guess is he talking about like like the need for like a better way of representing these things visually, or is he saying it is is it deeper than that? Like, is it more significant than that? Uh, I think he's yeah. talking about the data structures because, uh, okay. you know, he's using, uh, the example here of like how they encoded this in Fortran, um, uh, because like uh, each, each, uh, visual representation is going to need to have, uh, is, is going to need to have its own arrangement of flows right. and those flows obviously need to be based on data, uh, right. And so you need to um, you need to have a relationship between the underlying sensory data and mm -hmm. each level of recursion that is appropriate to that level of recursion. So you can represent right. it appropriately. Okay. I think okay, that yeah, that that's kind of that makes sense. And and then I guess like to to you know, it's like I, I've been reading Decision and Control and he talks about like isomorphic and homomorphic mapping of like different things. And I think that's kind of like what he's talking about here. How do you map it 
in a data in this data structure that is readable by Fortran, but is not losing the important bits that make this data significant and like well not I mean it's significant, but like make it make sense. And I guess I guess when he's talking about the the benzene ring or the double helix is like at different levels of recursion, you know, like what we consider what we say like an A in DNA is actually like these two benzene rings together like this. And what we consider is a G is like three benzene rings. I'm, I'm, I don't remember biochemistry too well, but you know, something like that, where it's like, it's this abstraction that means something significant because it's specifically mapping to this particular thing. And we can use it to like abstract this information from the data, but it doesn't lose any of the actual, like it's preserving the important bits, but not taking into account. Like we don't need to know there's like this oxygen molecule on every strand of DNA, like on every like base pair of DNA, you know, in this particular spot, like we know it's there by just saying that this hel this double helix is is intact, and therefore we don't have to worry about like the fact that there are all these bonds and whatever. So I guess that right. It, I don't and know if that makes. Sense. I guess when we're talking about topology, like I don't, I'm not a mathematician. I don't, I don't know too much about this stuff, but it it seems to me that like the topological mesh is going to have a have uh, more complex connections than what you would get between a child parent relationship in a uh, in a tree structure um, I, if, if i just i, I think in a, just another thing though just that that like when he says DNA and he talks about the double helix maybe he wasn't probably wasn't thinking about this when he gave this example because it's like kind of before we had as deep an understanding of DNA as we have now, but like the structure of DNA is how, is what causes it to like replicate and be read and move around and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we were to create some sort of like truly like smart and like innovative uh, data structure, not, not data structure in the sense like data that the computer can read, but just like this way of mapping that, causes the the data itself to like reveal the quantities of the or not quantities um qualities of the data mm -hmm. so like just by looking at it you can see well it's 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 arranged in this in this way which which to the person reading it if they have the knowledge reveal something about how it's how it's operating i think would is a cool Thing. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's precisely why he argues for the use of this like feedback loop system over the input output system, right? Is so that the, the structure will reveal something. Um, the other the other thing I just wanted to touch on is uh, I don't think it's the case that we're dealing with a uh, a real unreal distinction when it comes to the. Uh, uh, production level measurable stuff and uh, the abstractions. It's it's more the case that it's it's a perceptible imperceptible thing because it, it just kind of reminds me of like in um, the debates about value theory and like whether uh, value is a scientifically valid concept given that it is imperceptible. It can't be directly measured in any way. Um, and so some people would say, you know, that's not actually real. Uh, that's superfluous and you don't need this third thing. And then other people would say, no, like theoretical 
uh, like inferred theoretical structures can still be real and uh, scientifically meaningful. And I think Beer is talking about the structure in that second sense. Um, uh, okay, so let's go to Jeremy and then Shane. Okay, so I have the opposite gap in that I don't understand the biology, but I understand the mathematics. So I'm just looking up dendritic molecules, and I see something that Beer didn't have the concept of fractals, but he's kind of talking about a fractal structure in a sense. Like I, the pop psych version of fractals should be avoided here. Um, basically, you have a problem in that the only, I guess, real data coming in is happening at the base recursive level. And that you have a system four, which is the only part of a given recursion level that can look outside. I mean, the systems one can... But because they're viable systems, and within those viable systems, their system fours are looking outside. But ultimately, there are facts and figures. There's a certain amount of raw materials. There's a certain amount of people. There's things like that. And so his idea is that as you jump up to higher recursions, they're still dealing with things that are happening at the base recursion but at the higher recursions, you can cluster them into clusters or den dendron dendrons. And then at that next level of recursion, you're dealing, you're manipulating dendrons, not atoms. And then at the next level, you're manipulating two dendrons, like two hyphen dendrons, not two different dendrons, like two-dimensional dendrons and so on up the thing. But ultimately, these are all made of atoms, and these atoms are occurring at the base recursion level. Mathematics does a pretty good job of providing a set of tools for doing this. And ultimately, if he were writing this today, he'd be using category theory to do this. And category theory evolved out of topology. And so you have this sort of jump from an algebraic perspective where you have homomorphisms and isomorphisms, jumping up to the topological level where these things are abstracted a bit to the categorical level, which I think makes all of this stuff make more sense. So um, his idea that the Fortran compiler can map dendrites is, I've, I've never worked with Fortran, but I've worked with other programming languages. My guess is that you can pack in the clusters of atoms all the way into the Fortran compiler and deal with it that way. But then he worries, what if these steps aren't dead dendritic in nature? What if there's some sort of more subtle topological transformation taking place as you jump from recursion to recursion? And so he's warning you that for them, they came up with a tool based on different layers of dendron, dendron, dendron going up to a full dendritic molecule, which is built of layers. You think of a fractal, you have the self-similar replicating system, but each iteration pushes it to another level. So I think 
And he gets into this a little bit more when he starts talking about this. I think it's funny because you guys just dropped the edit for chapter four. Mm -hmm. And listening to that, I was thinking about the story of the person who likes the red lights being manipulated into making money for the next person who himself is being manipulated by someone who's trying to do some sort of moral aesthetic value test and doesn't care about money. We're seeing how in each of these recursions, conceptually things are different. But running through all of it is this restriction that at the end of the day, system four in each of these recursions is referring through recursive steps down to the base recursion. Right. Yes. Uh, we just have to remember that the base is infinitely deferred. Right. That's <laughs> there is no actual like the, the atom is in some ways uh, an illusory thing. The, the, the depth is infinite. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like in modern science, how the, the term atom is a bit of a joke because it's not actually atomic in the Epicurean sense at all. Um, uh, you're sort of resigning yourself to what you're gonna, what kind of dendron you're gonna call an atom. Right, right, exactly. Um, uh, okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna go to Shane and then Matt. Yeah, the, um, the 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 talk of like data and like abstraction and like the um, the fractal thing like just reminds me of like the. The, the fractal nature of like a Lisp language with like its, its lists of atoms and everything is composed of lists ultimately. Um, and you get that self-similarity all the way down. I think a lot of this stuff, what Beer is kind of getting at in this paragraph or two is more or less a solved problem for a lot of um, practical computer programming sort of stuff. Because like, I mean, to, to kind of to take a concrete example, like you'll have some part of a system that deals with like addresses, like postal addresses. And there'll be a part of the system that cares about the like postcode, street name, street number, apartment, apartment number. And those are the atomic pieces that make up an address. But then that, that part of the system globs them all together into a molecule called an address and then passes it off to some other thing. And there's going to be a higher part of the system that just looks at addresses and doesn't care about any of the internal contents at all. Now, those are the same 306 bytes that are being dealt with in both cases, but one of those, one of those um, layers cares more about the internal structure of what's inside the 306 bytes. And the one above it just thinks of it as a block, a blob of binary data that's called an address. And it just like throws it into an email server or whatever. Um, and then there'll be something else like orders, like here you're doing shipping orders. An order com combines an address, like relatively speaking, an atom, with a list, uh, a bill of materials as an atom and combines them into a molecule and so on. So this is, this is deeply familiar to anyone who's kind of done a coding job as like just building up from an, um, atomic components like bit strings and integers and booleans and slamming them together into um, collections like lists and maps basically are the only two you really get usually and um, building trees and trees of, um, of abstraction on top of those. Um, yeah. Yeah, I I think that there is something slightly more complex going on here than that, but I don't think it's 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 like uh, something that can't mm -hmm. be handled by the model you described. Um, sure. So he says, uh, 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 
I'm just looking for this this section. Um, the problem is surely clear. How does one quantify two different molecules made up of the same set of atoms? So mm -hmm. I think what you're looking at is a, for example, a data structure that is looking at um, is agglomerating, say, the postal codes only mm -hmm. from multiple different uh, address blocks. I was about to go to the exact same example of like, what if there was, um, what do you do with two orders that are going to the same postcode? Because that would kind, that would kind of cross a layer of recursion in, in yes. the schema I outlined. Yes. But there would be, there would certainly be a thing of like trying to optimize, don't send two trucks basically. Yeah. But that would mean you would have to have something that can kind of look across the yes. data structure and figure out that like, oh, we have a list of orders going out and we sort of treat them as having opaque address objects inside them. We do care about some of the contents of the address objects because we want to optimize for sending one truck to one postcode. And that kind of cuts across in an awkward way, which is, yeah, that's that's exactly what Yeah, and I, I think this is, uh, it, it, it might be sufficient to say that these, these orders of being are not neatly siloed, right? And, and that's mm -hmm. the issue yeah. that they're dealing with here. Um, Absolutely. Uh, okay, Matt, go ahead. You're extremely muted. Matt. You're muted. Yeah. Oh, oh, whoops. Uh, yeah, it, it mentioned a, a reality of things um, uh, bef uh, before, and like whether value is real. You know, beer is very into like um, instrumentalism and constructivism and um, and second order cybernetics that say, you know, it kind of doesn't really matter. Like, what? Yeah, we're not trying to dis discern um, uh, what's like true in some abstract sense. Like, we're just trying to make models that are useful. And so, yeah, the, 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 that's part of why the VSM has five um, has you know has five pieces to it because you know part of what you're doing with second order cybernetics is you know you, you're making models that um you know kind of fit ergonomically with the human brain and you know he says hey you, know, you, you really shouldn't be dealing with like more than five things or so at the same time and so at some level or another you know like it, it is a philosophy of science that makes these things like kind of um you know arbitrary is the wrong word but but you know like it is it's it's sculpture you know like like uh, you, 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 you you're creating an interface basically um uh, you know it even goes with like the chemistry stuff of like um uh, you know on some level you know like the fixed orbitals you know are very wrong you know um uh, you know it's much more quantum and weird like when you uh when you zoom in but like people still like use those models um uh, to make new chemical compounds because like it actually is like a very good interface for a certain level of abstraction yeah i i, I think this is this is pragmatic um, I'm just saying that, uh, yeah, beer, beer is not really concerned with, um, the, uh, I guess like platonic reality of things, but, uh, in a pragmatic model, something is essentially real in the it insofar as it is efficacious, and so we can uh, accept the reality 
of imperceivable abstractions because they are meaningfully efficacious in the way that, like, you know, the VSM, the flows of the VSM are at a higher level of abstraction. Um, similarly, you know, Marx is concerned with the reality of value insofar as it is actually the thing driving capitalism, uh, even though it can't be directly measured. It is it is is necessary for the purposes of functional explanation. Because um, otherwise you get into Ricardian nonsense, right? Um, uh, okay. Um, or physicalist nonsense, I guess you'd say. Uh, so, so, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's see, let's move on then. <clears throat> so, so far we've been talking about connections between the recursions in terms of structural modeling and the specification of measures that are atomic, but must needs emerge as molecular too. But all this is the initial and static framework for an interconnectivity between recursions that is most emphatically operational and dynamic. Action happens, homeostats circle, information flows. Then who gets to look in on all the, this activity? The answer is systems 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1 of the viable system concerned, which is a firm, we may call it beta, first of all. Next, we recall that beta constitutes a system 1 in alpha. So uh, alpha is the higher level of recursion here, not the lower one. Then systems 5, 4, and 3 in alpha have as its metasystem the authority to delimit the autonomy of any alpha system 1, which in this example is the whole of beta. But it should do so according to the cybernetic rules, which we have studied and which are intended to preserve the maximum autonomy for alpha system one, consistent with preserving the coherence of alpha as a viable system itself. And it is certainly convenient to beat beta that it should. So it's essentially like the rule of autonomy applies to alpha and as a logical consequence applies to the entirety of beta, right? It's, it's, it's not that alpha is applying a separate rule to the whole of beta. It's that it is applying this autonomous principle of viability to itself. And as a consequence is also applying that to beta. So, you know, uh, put this in easier terms, the higher level is applying the rule to itself. Therefore, as a consequence, it is also applying it to the entirety of the lower level. Um, suppose then, this being the scenario, that we supply beta with the whole CyberSyn package, the four tools, and a computer. Beta proceeds to create the atomic indices and to act on notices of incipient change from its computer. Its autonomy preserves it from nosy parkerdom in Alpha System 3. But Beta is an Alpha System 1 as well. Therefore, Beta makes up, out of its total atomic data, some kinds of aggregated package to send to Alpha 3. These packages could be molecules in the sense defined, but it is likely that the molecules Alpha 3 needs contain packages from all Alpha's Betas, and not just from the one we are considering. 
So probably these packages, which we hope are not just lists of totals, will be some sets of indices produced as weighted mathematical functions of atomic components. At any rate, this has to be agreed, and when it is, alpha respects the autonomy of beta in other respects. Um, so this is uh, uh, essentially the thing we were just talking about, Shane, with the the sort of holographic aggregation of lower levels. Uh, you know, what what it's saying is like, Alpha System 3, the higher level one, is not going to actually consider the atomic data from just one of its inputs. It's going to consider the totality of its inputs. And therefore, uh, you know, there isn't a direct master-servant uh, relationship going on here. It's it's something uh, more complex than that. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah. So it's um, that the for alpha for the let's just say parent um, organization, the the system one interface and system two and system three are aggregating and blending data together to form these these kind of like these these you know these um, signals arrive at these nervous. Um, centers and get aggregated together and then fire the way the way that's the way neurons work. So the the data, the particular data from any one of the child systems is being blended and blurred, uh, just just in the nature of the system uh, as as it can be seen from above. So it's um, it, it's it's not going to be concerned with like the exact particulars of what what you specifically are doing. It's more concerned with what the team is doing as an and aggregate. There's not really any value add to Alpha 3 if the only thing it's considering is uh, uh, one of the betas. Because <laughs> that will be one Because that beta is already doing that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's already concerned with itself. Uh, Alpha 3 adds value to the organization by doing that sort of like, yeah, that... Uh, that uh, uh, nervous firing as a result of many inputs. Um. <clears throat> uh, okay, so th that was uh, a little bit difficult to parse, but we, we, we did it. We did the thing, I think. Uh, with its molecular indices, alpha is in a position to quantify its own quantified flowchart and to submit its own managerial indices for filtration by Cyberstride, and so on up the scale of recursion. This arrangement resolves the paradox with which we started. Since each level of management has its uniquely appropriate molecular data system, even though atomic data are the same with which to quantify its unique flowchart. Moreover, the schema represents maximum decentralization, since any given level of recursion receives directly only its own Cyberstride re reports. Um, so uh, essentially what he's describing here is the value of data structures, right? These, the, the data structures have value in this sense, uh, as opposed to just, you know, a... Uh, single perspective on an ocean of raw data. Um, <clears throat> receives directly only its own. 
There are then indirect reports from lower levels of recursion in the special circumstance of algodonic signals needed to operate the arousal filter of figure 32. Uh, 32 is... Let's go back just to check what we're looking at here. Okay, 32 is uh, the System 3 diagram on page 177. Uh, yeah, that's that's what that that's what that is. Uh, so the arousal filter is the uh, sort of like emergency line that bypasses the main ne nexus of system three. Um, the essence of the matter is that if an alpha system one is in trouble, it will try to get itself out. It is, after all, also beta, a viable system. So, yeah, the alpha system one, the higher level system one, essentially has its own viability insofar as it is a lower level, like the beta system. It is its own viable system. Uh, if it cannot do that in a reasonable time, it recalls that it is, after all, an alpha system one and sends an algodonic signal for help. Right. So that's the thing where it's like you say you 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 press the big red button and say something's wrong down here and then it goes up. And then if it's ignored, they it goes up another level and another level and another level all the way until, you know, the president hears about the fire in, you know, uh, some pork plant in Kansas. You know, it's <laughs> it's. Uh, <laughs> Ideally, that'll never happen, but that's the idea. I'm uh, sure there's a Simpsons routine of that, but like the, the phone is disconnected in Mr. Burns's office or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how shall it do so? And what happens if it is too cocksure or too lazy or too corrupt to mention its problem in gamma to alpha? So gamma would be a lower level of recursion again. Uh, gamma is, of course, a system one of beta and something about which Alpha should, would normally know nothing since this is Beta's job. The solution to both problems is that the alerting signal of incipient change, which should stay with the autonomous Beta, will automatically convert into an algodonic signal from Beta qua Alpha 1 uh, to the Alpha metasystem unless Beta succeeds in overcoming the problem, which is its job. This procedure, which is logically faultless, contains an operational problem. This is not the problem. What counts as an action? Since that is a matter for beta management. All that interests alpha is that beta homeostats are operating within physiological limits. No, the problem is to know how long beta should take to restore homeostasis, before the beta alert converts to an alpha algodonic signal. So like, you know, uh, if you have a grease fire in the kitchen, uh, how long do we need to worry about that being a problem for the organization as a whole? Uh, like, and how long should, should it be where we just ignore it because they're just going to pull out the fire extinguisher or they're going to put a, they're going to put a lid on top of the, on, on top of the, uh, uh, the grease fire, the, the pan. Um, 
The system at this point could become oppressive, and therefore the operational research teams, in addition to creating quantified flowchart models with the help and agreement of workers' committees, uh, were expected to nominate the physiological recovery times for each index on the same terms, that is, with help and agreement. It is not difficult to persuade people that their best interest is served by automatic notification of their difficulties, provided that they themselves have control of the parameters of the system under which this will be done. So this is like essentially the worker saying, well, we should be able to get this under control in this amount of time. And if it's not, then we might need help, right? The, 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 the system ones are going to primarily determine these, these thresholds. Uh, Shane and then Jeremy, go ahead. The uh, the example of the grease fire kind of reminded me that like um, this kind of is how a lot of like fire detection sort of things work. Basically, that like you have your fire alarms go off after a little bit, and then eventually the fire department will automatically be called if it seems to go out of control. Um, but you do need to allow time for just the the person who's right there to just fucking quench the fire. Um, and some people might say, well, why not just call the fire the fire department immediately? It would be a gigantic waste of fucking time because if the if the very first signal immediately put through a call to the fire department, they start scrambling to get in the fucking van and the guy in front of the fire just goes and, and it's over. And then the fire department people are still barreling down the highway. Um, you can't have the fire department be so twitchy and responsive to every little fucking thing. Like every time somebody lights a cigarette, they can't be heading out the door. Um, so you do need to allow... And you have to learn how long to wait. I mean, when it comes to um, big restaurants or hotels or whatever, we kind of know how quickly fires propagate in those things. We do know how long you can realistically wait um, before needing to go go further than that. And uh, we know what size of a fire can reasonably be expected to be dealt with just on the ground there. Um, but that that is learned over time. Um, also, this is exactly the way that alerting works um, at my job for like outages. Like there's a... We detect that there's an outage with the, with the site. Um, pings get sent out, like a text, first a text message and then a phone call to some of the people who are on the on-call rotation. If, the, if they don't respond to the text within, a, within 10 or 15 seconds, then a call goes through to them. If they don't respond to that, then up to the next layer. And then up, you, it would eventually go to the, um, the, the, the CEOs. The, they would get a phone call. Just, this is purely automated. And it's just responding to like timeout thresholds of escalation. Um, so this is a this is a lesson that has been learned um, in many many contexts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jeremy, go ahead. I got two observations. One, it seems to me that stepping up on levels of recursion is a monadic process, and stepping down on a recursion is a comonadic process. Um. I need to play with that a little more. It's been a while since I've played with monads and co-monads, but it seems to ring true. Hmm. The second thing is it absolutely, if we're going to be dealing with human beings and human dignity, this has to work within the parameters that the people actually dealing with the issue choose for themselves working through operational research because we've seen with the utter misery that Uber drivers have and that Amazon fulfillment center workers have 
that right now all of these algodonics are being constructed by a programmer who never meets these people and therefore puts them through utter hell because some abstract force decides what the appropriate parameters are for algodonics. And when they get it wrong, it's harrowing. So Beer is very, very aware that there's a deep human side to getting this wrong. And you cannot get it wrong without robbing workers of their dignity. Yeah, that's that's definitely been my experience with management as well, right? The, the point where it becomes oppressive is the point where they uh, ignore beyond reason my ability to set my own algodonic parameters, you know? Um, uh, so I would, uh, I would, I would certainly agree with that. Um, all right. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, we are now on to, yes. Uh, We, I believe we're at We Have Seen. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're just going to do this and then we'll wrap. Uh, we have seen the appearance and meaning of an algodonic signal lifting itself by a level of recursion from beta to alpha. But beta qua alpha system one is submitting data for the alpha, alpha cyber stride in any case. Yes. Oh, sorry, I'm going to reread that. But... Beta qua alpha system one is submitting data for the alpha cyber stride in any case. Yes, but it is submitting functions of atomic indices in that capacity and not atomic indices themselves. Uh, I think this is getting to the, the monadic structure that you're talking about, Jeremy. Um, uh, we may, may need to define monads and co-monads in our next discussion, if, if that's a useful thing to discuss, because uh, uh, I'm familiar with monads. I'm not familiar with co-monads. Um, <clears throat> uh, so uh, this is the precise difference between the incipient change alert and the algodonic arousal, that the latter moves to the next higher level of recursion. Here, of course, adequately prompt help may again be unforthcoming, in which case the algodonic signal will rise another level of recursion. In principle, then, it is possible for an algodonic signal originating at the plant level to reach the minister himself. If that were ever to happen, it would be a disgrace. The management at plant, enterprise, sector, and Rama levels of recursion will all, would all have failed. This is why the principle is precious. It is clearly an instrument of cohesiveness in the nest of viable systems. But again, it offers the maximum decentralization that is consistent with cohesion, since if all concerned do their agreed jobs properly, algodonic signals will rarely be fired. Um, and yeah, so the distinction he's drawing here is um, the normal flow of data from a lower level of recursion is an input to that level of recursion, but it never becomes a functional, uh, it, it never passes the same function up to the next level, 
right? It's just, it's just, uh, uh, it's, it's just, it's just feeding a functional output. But when you have the algodonic thing, it's like, this is a problem for me. I'm going to the higher level. And then the next level says, oh, this hasn't been answered. I'm going to do the same thing up to the next level. I'm going to do the same thing up to the next level. Um, so, uh, okay. Well, uh, I think we've, we've treated that in enough detail. Um, so, uh, thank you everyone, uh, for participating today. Uh, and, uh, we will continue this chapter next time. Uh, and I think we'll, well, like this is, this is some dense stuff we did. So I, I think it's going to go a bit faster when we get into the next, uh, the people project section. Um, mm -hmm. even though that is quite long in itself. Uh, yeah. So see you next week. Uh, and, and thank you for participating. Fantastic. See y'all soon. Bye. Bye.